the whole Bible may be summarized in two words. Jesus wins. Very simple, very easy, sometimes hard to understand the simplicity of it. So we're going to start with you telling me how we summarize the Bible in two words all together. So one, two, three. Jesus wins. One more time. So we get it really loud. One, two, three. Jesus wins. If somebody says summarize the Bible in three words, you're going to go, ta-da, Jesus wins. Because there's nothing you can add to it. That's all there is. Jesus wins. And it's not just an eschatological reality for the end of times. It's not just your assurance of what's going to happen after you die, knowing that you will wake up to Jesus' face in resurrection morning. It's not just that, even though that is included. It's a worldview for every day. When you put on your computer like I did, and you see 128 people have died in Paris. What, what happens? How can you say Jesus wins? Well, I remember, and my dad is probably watching on the internet today, so I, I want to say hello. I was born in a pastor's home in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he uh, had this story that since I'm a little girl, I was on the edge of my seat every time he told it, even though I already knew how it ended. And it was about this man this this hero that always was winning and this little boy fell in love with his hero so every magazine every book everything that came out about this hero this little boy bought but this last book that he just had bought was different the hero was not winning he was getting beat up and he was on the ground and he was being punched and he was being kicked and this boy was like something is really really wrong so after the first chapter he got so stressed that he went all the way to the last chapter of the book. And there he went to the last page. He wanted to see how this ended. There was no way his hero would lose. And there in the last page he saw that his hero won, that the villain was destroyed, and that his hero actually won. So now that he knew the end, he could relax. And so he went back to the first chapter of the book and read the whole book. But every time his hero was losing and the villain seemed to be winning, he would speak to the villain, to the villain out loud. He would say, if you just knew what I know, if you just knew what I know, and we know how it ends. One, two, three, Jesus wins. If that's all you can remember, because maybe you were not in Paris when this terrible tragedy happened yesterday, but maybe you were close to New York when that tragedy was with us in our own region, or maybe you were right there next to your spouse when they got the phone call from the doctor saying it was cancer. We all have crises and trouble. And Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. Why, Jesus? Why should I be of good cheer? Because I have overcome the world, and you already know how it ends. Jesus wins. So that's why the whole Bible, every story, not just one or two or three or four, not just one or two or three doctrines, everything in the Bible has been 
given to us in what we call a developmental and progressive manner, which means that every story has little parts. So we're going to do circles for you so that we give a graphic to the way the Bible was written. So you get a little bit at the beginning. So let's say, for example, the Passover, Exodus 12. We just get one circle. So let's do one circle saying, okay, Whoever is the, under this blood will be safe. But that's all they understand. They don't understand the ta-da. Because after that, 40 years later, they will cross to Jericho. They will take the Passover again. Then, then they will continue, 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 and developing, develop, de- developing until we get to the cross. And Jesus will die on Passover Friday at the time of the Passover sacrifice. And of course, Paul will explain it to us. Ta-da! Jesus is our Passover lamb. But that happens with every single topic of the Bible. So whether it's Sabbath or sanctuary or eschatology or Passover or Jubilee or the story of Samuel or David or Moses or Abraham or Noah, everything ends up in ta-da, Jesus wins. Because the Bible was written so that you may know a fact, not a probability, which some people preach a pseudo-gospel, that says, if you be lo- be, uh, love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you might be saved. That's not the biblical gospel. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ shall, will be saved. So if you have that assurance, whether you're facing death or the death of a loved one, or a terrorist attack, or a plane in the middle of a storm, or your kid in trouble, or finances, you already know how it ends. Jesus wins. Now, this movement was started so that we would continue with the bells of the Reformation, telling people of the assurance of having what Christ has achieved for them. We kind of got lost for a while, but I'm going to show you one quote from Ellen White from the very beginning of our movement. You know that Jesus himself gave this interpretive tool in Luke chapter 24 when he was going with the two disciples to Emmaus. He said, okay, let me give you this interpreted tool to, to understand the scriptures. All the law, all the prophets, and all the Psalms are, are about me, said Jesus. So don't make it about anything else. Study it deep enough until you get to the, ta-da, the cross. So this word hermeneutics that we use a lot, which means how to interpret a, a biblical text, comes from this word that Jesus said, he explained the scriptures to them. And that word explain is dear menua, where we get the word hermeneutics. He explained to them that all the law, the prophets and the Psalms were all about him. That they had to go back and reread the Passover, reread the red cord of Rahab in Jericho. Why that one red cord was going to save them. Everything had to be reread. And so when we started this movement, we were given that interpretive tool. And I'm going to show it to you so that uh, we read it together. Actually, you don't need to read it with me. I just want to show you. The sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin, is the great truth. We have one pearl of great price. Even though we have 28 angles through which we look at it, we still have one pearl of great price. The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth, how, how, how many of the truths that we have? Every one of them. Every truth in the Word of God from Genesis to 
Revelation must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. That's why I have a cross here because we're going to use it this morning. Second part of the paragraph goes like this. I present before you the great grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption, the Son of God uplifted on the cross. This is to be the foundation, (laughs) I love this, of every discourse given by our ministers. This is Gospel Workers, page 315. Not one every 28 discourses, not one every three months. Every discourse somehow has to interpret the reality we live and the truths in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. Okay, so if we get that, let's go back to our graphic. If we get that, remember the whole Bible is written like this. So, for example, on the Sabbath, if you only explain the Sabbath from Exodus 16, from the man or from Exodus 20, you're starting on the first circles. We celebrate our rest in Christ like the way that God celebrated his completion in creation. But you can't stay with the first circle only. It will expand, 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 expand until it gets to the cross. Ta-da! Jesus wins. So once we understand this way to interpret the scriptures, you will never feel a schizophrenic theology that says, yes, we're saved by Jesus, but, or and, or plus, because all those things were there to point you to Jesus in the first place. Every story, every doctrine, every principle in the Bible is pointing to Jesus wins, and Jesus has won, and therefore you already know how it ends, how the story ends. Whether you got bad news this morning, or you read the news last night, or whether you're in a storm in your family, you know how it ends. If you are believing in Jesus Christ, you know how it ends. Jesus wins, and he has taken you with him. So, I have chosen one of these many, many stories. You're going to need your Bible this morning. All the stories in the Bible will point to Jesus eventually, clearly, at the foot of the cross. So we're going to do the Exodus story. So please open your Bibles in Exodus 12 to start our study this morning. And I chose this one because it has an element that I love for Thanksgiving. But remember that all the stories, you know, I, I, I have um, spent my life in the scriptures and doing exactly that, looking how the story is related to redemption in Jesus Christ, whether that's David or Moses of Abraham or whether that's whatever part of the scriptures it may be. So Exodus 12, for example, is the first part, is that little circle in which they don't know much. They just know that if you're covered by the blood and you're inside the house, you're saved. You will be passed over. Of course, that will be greatly developed eventually in the New Testament, so we understand what that meant. But Exodus 12, verse 22, for example, let's start there. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door where you are at. So all they understood is they didn't know much. They didn't understand a lot. They just knew that if they did what the Lord said, put the blood on the doorpost, if they were inside the house, they would be passed over. Now, 
You know chapter 14. They are in front of the Red Sea, and God will make a way where there was no way. As a matter of fact, if you read carefully chapter 14, it says that they had already taken another route, and God made them go back so that they would be in a place of no way out. (laughs) And so they end up here with the mountain here and the mountain here, the sea here, the Egyptians there. And at that moment, God is starting to teach them how salvation would happen, how redemption from slavery would happen. And so he gives them through Moses a description that is hard for me because, because I, have, I understand, it happens to all of us, that we want to do something to help God in our salvation. Something. You know, and uh, um, Max Lucado has this very funny thing in his, in his book called Grace. He says, everybody believes in grace a lot. He says, but the grace allots, that's how they call them, the grace allots believe in grace a lot, but they don't believe in grace alone. Everybody believes in grace. Nobody's going to say it's not by grace. But if you're a grace allot, you believe in grace a lot. That doesn't mean you believe in grace alone. And so here Moses says, we're going to teach you how this happens. Chapter 14, verse 14 of Exodus. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Oh, that's such a hard job description for me. Because I want the Holy Spirit to do things through me. I want the Holy Spirit to do things in me, through me, all of that. But it took me a long time to understand that all those things don't merit one ounce for my salvation. They are there to bring people to God's kingdom and to live for his glory, but not to merit my salvation. And it takes a long time because we all want to have at least a little part. But there's no one thread of human doing in the robe of righteousness that saves us. So here, the Lord will fight for you. So chapter 15 is the song. I chose this topic today. I could have chosen any story because all the stories in the Bible end up with Jesus wins. But I chose this one because an element here in this song and because we are getting closer to Thanksgiving season. I love what happens in in Exodus 15. God makes a way where there is no way. So he opens the sea and they start singing a song. When I was a child, I, I, I used to obsess how come everybody knew this song. I wanted to know because in Revelation, everybody's singing a new song and I want to know the words because I don't want to you know, not sing when everybody else is singing. And this was, I always wonder how everybody knew this song. And here you have a chapter that in most of your Bibles is called the Song of Moses. Song of Moses. But it actually is a song about God. And if you see the word Lord in four capital letters, it's always the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. That we used to say Yehovah, but now we know a little more Hebrew, so we know it's Yahweh. This song has ten times the name of Yahweh. Yahweh did this, and Yahweh did that, and he opened this, and he did that, and all. It's about Yahweh. It's called the Song of Moses, but it's really about Yahweh. I love verse 13. In your loving kindness, in your grace, in your hesed, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. I love that word, redeemed. In the Hebrew, is the goel, the kinsman redeemer, the closest of kin who could do for you what nobody else could do including set you free. Like the book of Ruth, you know, is is based on the concept of the Goel. So here we have this exuberant Thanksgiving song. 
And then something happens. And that's why I chose this topic this morning. Verse 20. In the middle of this flamboyant, exuberant praise of thanksgiving, because of the Lord made a way where there was no way, Miriam, the prophetess, this is the first mention in the Bible of a woman being called a prophet. Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand. Okay, so here we go. I don't know if you know what a timbrel looked like uh, back then, but we had two types of timbrels back then. Archaeology shows us. One was by skin, timbrel, and this is a metal timbrel. So Miriam said, hey, this is too good. I got to take my timbrel. So the first question that I have is, who packs the timbrel? I mean, that's my first question. Here they're going to cross the desert. They're deciding what they're going to put in their little backpack or whatever to cross for how many weeks. I don't know. They're saying, okay, one pair of sandals, extra thing, a, a coat. Oh, yeah, a timbrel. Let's put the timbrel in. Who packs a timbrel? What did you say? <laughs> Somebody who is so sure that they have such a big God that is going to do such big things that they don't want to miss out when the moment to go, woohoo, comes. They want to have the, woo, the timbrel. And you know what? It wasn't Miriam alone. Look what happened when Miriam started. <laughs> I love this. I would love to have been there. Miriam the prophetess, verse 20, Exodus 15, 20. Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women, all the women went out after her with their timbrels and with dancing. Everybody had decided to pack a timbrel just in case there was a reason, such a big reason to celebrate their God and how majestic this God was and how he made a way where there was no way. And so Miriam started singing. Sing to the Lord for he's highly exalted, the horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. Now we are in the, in the beginning of this story. The whole story of the Exodus will actually develop throughout the whole Bible because we're going to the promised land. So I'm going to make a parenthesis. To live or die with that timbrel in your hand means that at some point you became so assured of the outcome that you have seen that God already made a way where there was no way and you cannot stop but tell everybody Jesus wins. Now, I think you have heard the story of the fork. I tell the, the many of you watch my program on television uh, and have told me that, that you watch it, so you probably have heard the story I tell. Uh, this is a story from a pastor that called this... this um, the pastor was called to this woman's bedside. She was dying. She knew. You know, when somebody's facing death, and, and Pastor John can tell you here, uh, and somebody calls you to do the memorial with you. I've been a pastor for 15 years, so this has happened to me many, many times. Uh, they said, you know, I know I'm dying. You, are, you either find somebody at peace with assurance, or you find somebody very fearful. There's not many options at that moment. Pretty much two. You either are assured of the outcome or you are not. 
And so this woman called the pastor and said, you know, I want to have this memorial service at church. I'm dying in about two weeks, the doctor said. So I want to make sure that when you do the memorial, uh, my brother will read my biography, my daughter will do this. And then she says, I want an open casket ceremony, and I want you to put a fork in my hand. So the pastor thought he had misheard her. So he said, I'm sorry, what did you say? She said, I want a fork in my hand. And the pastor said, why would you want a fork in your hand? And she said, that's my last testimony. Because everybody's going to ask you why I have a fork in my hand. And you're going to tell them this. You're going to tell them that because I'm already old, people helped me with the food in the potlucks. And the young people of the church brought the plate and the food. And then they came for the plate when I was done. And if they told me, keep your fork... She said, I knew the dessert was coming and the best was yet to come. So she says, I'm dying with a fork in my hand knowing that the best is yet to come. I loved this story. I always loved it because it's this celebration story. But it became very special to me when my mother made her last trip to City of Hope. A couple months before Thanksgiving last year, and said to me, you know, I think this is the last one. But don't worry, she said. I'm so thankful that I know how this ends. She says, I'm going to die today or next week, but I'm going to take a little siesta, a little nap. The next face I I see is going to be Jesus. And she said to me, I'm holding a fork in my hand. And it became a very special story to me because I had never, of all the years that I have pastored, See somebody die with a timbrel, with a fork saying, hey, I know it looks like it's over, but it's not over because I know in whom I have believed and I know how that Jesus wins. So this is not only something that happens for the future. This is the worldview through which you interpret your reality today. Terrorist attacks and news and disease and death and financial problems, you already know how it ends. And you know it in two words, very simple ones. What are they? Jesus wins. So I wish I had a lot of time to tell you how this topic develops. I don't, but I'm going to take you to the Gospels. So go to Luke chapter 9. Now, if we had a lot of time, I will show you how the Exodus became one of those typological, symbolic stories about the cross. How God would make a way where there was no way. How the the blood, if you were inside, you knew you would be passed over. So you would never be afraid of the judgment because for those who believe in Jesus Christ, they have been judged already. They have been judged innocent because he was guilty in your place. Luke chapter 9 is one of those very special places where we are told what Moses and Elijah went to do on Transfiguration uh, Mount with Jesus. Now, all the Gospels tell us about Transfiguration account, except that Luke is the only one that tells us what Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about. Luke chapter 9 We're going to start, let's say, on verse 29. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 29. Now, we have the representative of the law, 
Moses and the representative of the prophets, Elijah, showing up to encourage Jesus for the last final days. Verse 29, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah. Check this out, verse 31, who appearing in glory were speaking of his And then depending on what version you have, we'll say departure or death or exit. All those things are in different versions, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But I want to tell you what the original says. So I brought a slide of the Greek interlinear Bible. I always tell people, buy an interlinear Greek-English. Even if you don't speak Greek, the English under the Greek is literal so that you know exactly what the text says. And here is the interlinear. Chapter 9, verse 31. Who having appeared in glory were speaking of the... Look at the word. What's the word? Exodus. That he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Now check that out. Now it makes a lot more sense. Moses comes to encourage Jesus and says, Look, I've been in the first Exodus. I remember the faces of those people coming out of slavery into redemption to the promised land. You, Jesus, will do the actual Exodus. Not the one that was symbolic of you, but the real one. You will accomplish the exodus in Jerusalem. What other better person to encourage Jesus on the exodus than Moses? And so now we have the cross as the moment in which God made a way where there was no way. Now we have the cross, and we understand the Passover lamb, and he made a way where there was no way, and he said it is finished, so you can say, yes, woohoo, Jesus wins. And if we had hours and hours and hours, I would walk you through all the times that the Exodus theme will come up, come up, come up, because we're going to the promised land until we get to the book of Revelation. I really encourage you to ask for this book that you were offered through the Jesus 101 app. I wrote this book, it's called Revelation, the Fifth Gospel, and it's all about pictures of Jesus in the book of Revelation. All these pictures that were developed from the Old Testament to, ta-da, Jesus wins. The code is Kalimesa, don't forget. Revelation 15, we find the same scene again. Now, this is unbelievable. This is how the whole Bible is written in a progressive developmental manner. Now, we get to Revelation 15. By the way, did you know that there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation? But there's 518 allusions to the Old Testament in this book. More than one per verse. So all the images are from the Old Testament. So God will show John images that were there in Ezekiel and in Isaiah and the Exodus and Zechariah and Jeremiah and would say, ta-da, look what they were about. So we have 404 verses, but more than 500 allusions to Old Testament imagery to now understand it and expand it and say, see, that's why everybody has white robes because of the blood of the Lamb. And so, we get to Revelation 15. Again, we are standing by the sea. Again, we have an instrument in our hands. Again, we're singing the song of Moses. Luke chapter 15, verse 2. I'm sorry, Revelation 15, verse 2. 
I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and the image and the number of his name standing on that sea of glass, they were holding harps of God and they started singing. Now, of course, you've been following the whole thing since the beginning now, and we're getting to the big ta-da. And so here goes. Look what they were singing. Verse 3. And they sung the song of Moses, which we already heard about in Exodus 15. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, which now we realize it was also what? The song of the Lamb. Remember that song of Moses back in Exodus 15? Remember the Exodus that Jesus achieved on the cross? Now they're singing the song of Moses, which happens to be the song of the Lamb. And now again, they're all saying, Mighty are your works, O Lord, because you have redeemed the human race. Don't you get goosebumps? We could do it with every story of the Bible. Because all the stories are there because it's the history of redemption. So that you may know and live with the joy of your salvation. Because joy is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of Christ. And so, perhaps, and we don't have time to go through the content of the song one more time. The time goes very fast. But if you're facing uncertainty, remember the cry, that cry that summarizes the whole Bible. Let's do it one more time. One, two, three. Jesus wins. That is how it ends. That's your certainty. That's the assurance of your salvation. And when he wins, he, take you, he takes you with him. That's how you know how it ends. And so I have a challenge for you before I show you the final video. What would it take if we start right now, not just in Thanksgiving season, but all the time, whether you're facing difficulties or whether you're facing death, remember that you know how it is. Jesus wins. He has already won. Do you know that the word that he said when, in the Greek where it says, it is finished at the cross, is the same word that the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, says when God completed creation. Same word. When God completed creation, he said, it's completed. When Jesus completed redemption, he said, it's completed. The whole thing is completed. So somebody starts celebrating. Because it's done. That's how we spell salvation. D-O-N-E. Woo! So, I was born in the church, but I didn't understand the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ that takes us all as handicapped as we are and says, you're a winner because I am the winner and I'm taking you with me. You will be with me in paradise. That's the only reason why you will be in paradise, said Jesus. So I didn't understand the gospel, and then one day I started following this family, which all of you know because it became very popular since then. It's been 25 years that I follow the Hoyt family. The Hoyt team is a father and son who run marathons together. The, 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 the child was born quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. And so one day when he was nine years old, the father entered him, actually the boy wanted to go, to a marathon for handicapped children. And so the father went through all the 5K with a wheelchair. When they crossed the finish line, 
the boy had a big smile on his face. And so the father wanted to know why, but the child couldn't speak. So they had made a computer for him that put a little thing on his forehead, and he could type because he was very intelligent. It's just that he couldn't talk. And he got home and said, Dad, typing with his forehead, today when I crossed the finish line, it was the first time I felt like a winner. I felt like I could walk. I felt like I mattered, that I have worth. And the father said, of course you do, my son. You're my son. And we're going to enter every possible marathon together. And I will always take you to the finish line because you're my son. And so they started training. And I followed them for 25 years. They have trained more, uh, more than countless hours. But they have actually run a thousand marathons together. But it was the day I saw the documentary that I will show you called of the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. And I saw this man carry this son 126 miles of biking, 26.5 miles of running, 2.5 miles of swimming to cross that finish line. It was the first time I understood the gospel and why I can live with a smile on my face. Because he's so handicapped and he's a winner because he has a father who carried him through the finish line. And there is a song in this documentary, My Redeemer Lives. You know, perhaps you're like Job this year. You don't even know what to be thankful about. You don't understand why you had to lose your family and your health and your possessions and your cattle and whatever it was. But Job ended up with one truth, just one truth. I know that my Redeemer lives. That's it. I know how it ends. Spiritually, emotionally. But I have come to believe that my Redeemer lives. I have come to know how the story ends. And I'm going to live with a smile on my face, even though it's trouble, and even though there's some days that the phone doesn't ring, and sometimes the phone rings with bad news, and sometimes you lose a loved one, and sometimes you're in the hospital bed, and sometimes you put your computer on, and it says 128 people were killed in a terrorist attack. I'm still going to hold a fork in my hand because I know in whom I have believed and I know the best is yet to come. Until that day when we see him face to face, nobody else will be able to take that smile from my face, not because there's no trouble in the world, but because the whole Bible can be, su can be summarized in two words. Let's say them together. One, two, three. Jesus wins. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.
who gave his life so that you may have a white robe and enter once again in paradise and take of the tree of life, the one who has assured you that you're going to the promised land because you're going with him and because he made a way where there was no way. May your Redeemer give you the joy of your salvation and the assurance that Jesus wins and has taken you with him. So celebrate that you're seated in the thrones of heaven already because we spell salvation D-O-N-E. In his name, amen.